carry on and we just spend time worshiping the Lord. Such a sweet thing to do together. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 17. Once again, we have the joy of being addressed by the Lord Jesus himself in his word. A word which is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. A word that is God-breathed. And as we spend time with Jesus in his word, we have the opportunity to be complete for every good work that we can be mature and operate as he's called us to be. I've called this message this morning, Extraordinary, Ordinary Christianity. Not sure if that's even legally English to do so, but I've gone for it anyway. Extraordinary, ordinary Christianity. And we're going to give ourselves to the first 10 verses of chapter 17. And I believe the Lord does want to address us this morning. Does want to speak to our hearts. Does want to go after us in particular as his disciples. And this is what he says. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, And turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, oh, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he, is in, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is inspired. And I thank you that as we sit as your children today, you want to address us. You are eager through your word, eager through your Holy Spirit to bring things to life in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, I pray that not an individual in the room today would go away unaffected and uncared for by you. You are addressing us. So Lord, would it be your voice that we hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some things in life that are simply just inevitable. Time, for example. As a New South Wales supporter, how fast was that closing 10 minutes this week in State of Origin? You know, that time was just going so quickly. When you're winning, it seems to go so slow. But when you're losing and you're trying to make up the ground, I'm convinced that those seconds were much quicker than usual seconds. But one thing is for sure, those seconds are happening and time is running out, whether we like it or not. It is inevitable. Taxes. It doesn't matter which government get into power. Guess what? We're paying taxes. It's just universal. Death. 
The reality that for each and every one of us, it is all going back in the box. We may, we can try and stop it. We can even get plastic surgery to pretend it isn't happening to our bodies, but I can assure you it is. One day it all goes back in the box. There are some things in life that are simply inevitable. And temptations to sin as a result of other people's actions and words, what Jesus wants to help us see here, they are likewise simply inevitable. All of us in the room will find times in our lives when we are on the end of other people's sin. Other people's words that are spoken out of place. Other people's actions that deeply wound us. Those temptations to sin in response are going to be prevalent in our lives. It's a fact of life. Jesus doesn't say here in verse 1, if this happens. His premise is when this happens. It's coming for you. And what I love about this text then, is that right here in this text, it, it really is simply about this. What we have here is a lesson on what it all means to truly walk together as extraordinary, ordinary Christians. What it actually looks like to walk arm in arm together, serving Jesus together, knowing that it will be the very people in this room likely that at some point in your life will wound you and hurt you and sin against you. It's going to happen. So how do we walk together as his disciples? How do we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily? How do we love Jesus Christ in the context of community? Knowing that it isn't always going to be easy. What does it mean to truly walk together as extraordinary, ordinary Christians? Profoundly, that is what Jesus is addressing here. In chapter 17 from verses 1 through to 10. So I have four points this morning. Four things that I want to bring out from the word as we just walk through it together, but really just one hope. And it's the hope that we really will see what it all means to truly walk together as extraordinary, ordinary Christians. Extraordinary because we've been chosen by God himself. Extraordinary because Jesus died in our place and empowers us for this ministry that he's called us to. But ordinary because so much of life isn't winning the nations for Jesus. So much of life is just done right here. In the context of community. And what we do right here, as biblically defined, really does matter. So what does it all mean? What does it mean to walk together even though we know there will be times when others will tempt us to sin as a result of their sin in their actions and their words? Well, four things and here's the first. Number one, it means watching ourselves. In light of the reality that sin is prevalent, it first and foremost means watching ourselves. You see, whether we like it or not, the presence of sin in this fallen world makes our temptations to sin absolutely inevitable. It's coming your way. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, the destructiveness of sin is seen throughout general culture. Intellectuals often directly assault Christian belief. Criminal offenders regularly lead others headlong into sin. The icons of pop culture lure multitudes away from truth and life. Even some within the religious culture of faith, pastors and teachers who engage in spiritual compromise, lay huge stumbling blocks before little ones. False doctrine is the primary stumbling block of these religious leaders. And it is not just limited to rank heresy. 
sometimes takes the form of eccentric teaching, legalism, and doctrinal imbalance. All of which turn people away from simple faith in Jesus Christ. And nearly as bad as that stumbling block of false teaching is the stumbling block of scandalous living. My friends, the destructiveness of sin is seen throughout general culture, is it not? Intellectuals telling us God doesn't exist. And so we start to be drawn drawn into this. Okay, well, how does this work out? Pop icons that we all admire on the silver screen, or we admire them as pop stars, and then they tell us something totally ridiculous, antichrist, but particularly for our younger members, we can be drawn into that. Oh, that's the way I want to live. It looks so amazing. So we're drawn away all the time and affected. Offenders that love to sin, that want to draw us in. Hey, this is fun. Come and do it with me. Sadly, sometimes even believers, both leaders in churches and members of churches that either operate in bad example and teaching or scandalous sin to the point that causes other people to go, you know what, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I'm out. Whether we like it or not, the destructiveness of sin is seen throughout culture and Jesus knows that. So this is what he says to us in verses 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, he's addressing each of us, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. What Jesus is helping us see here is, listen, this is going to happen. Temptations to sin are sure to come. It's not a matter of if. It is a matter of when. You will all at some point in your life be on the end of a stumbling block that has happened to you at the hands of somebody else. And Jesus wants to address here, woe is the offender. You see, the little ones that he's talking about here aren't literal infants and children by age. They are spiritual infants and children. He's talking about Christians here. He's talking about spiritual infants and children. That's why he addresses us as Luke, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, and Mark 10, verse 24. He addresses Christians as little children. What he's saying is, woe are you if as a result of your sin and your actions, you cause other believers to stumble and fall. It would be better for you If a 60 kilogram millstone was wrapped around your neck and you die a gruesome death drowning at the bottom of the sea, then it would be for you to cause other people to stumble. Such is its seriousness. It is a horrendous thing before the Lord through our sin to cause other people to stumble. And though it's not clear exactly what that woe will mean, what we do know is it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if it would be better to die a gruesome death now than to face him that day, we know this isn't good what you're going to be facing. One day we'll all give an account. And woe to you if you cause a believer to stumble. You know, for each and every one of us then, I'm sure as we think about this reality, we can think of people who maybe have caused others to stumble. Famous people often, people that are out there that cause people to stumble. And you think, yeah, I had a friend that doesn't follow Jesus because of that guy or because of this happened. I get it. 
But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't tell us now. He doesn't address his disciples. Say, hey, listen, start thinking about all those people. No, he says this in verse 3a. This is his conclusion. 3a. Pay attention to yourselves. Given the reality of the dangerousness of causing others to stumble. He's not saying, okay, now think about other people that may be doing that. No, he's like, stop, think about yourself. Pay attention to yourself. See, as Christians, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the glorious reality of the gospel is that we are now free from the penalty and power of sin, are we not? In God's grace... When Jesus Christ died in our place and declared it is finished, the power and penalty of sin in our life was finished. The penalty of sin was taken on by Christ in full. When he said, you are forgiven, he meant it. It's done. I forgive you. I have drank the cup of God's wrath in its full. You are forgiven. Past, present, and future, it has been removed as far as the east is from the west. The penalty of your sin has been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. And the power of sin in your life has now been broken, which is why we can say sin no longer has dominion over me. The power and penalty of sin has been broken in the life of any and every believer. However, every believer is not free from the presence and influence of sin. There's a battle that goes on, is there not? That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans, oh wretched man that I am. Why is it that I keep on doing the things I know I shouldn't and I don't do the things I know I should? There's a battle at work in my life between the Holy Spirit, the new self and the flesh, the old self. For the power and penalty of sin has been broken in our life, but its presence and influence remains. And knowing then the seriousness of what it would mean to cause another fellow believer to stumble, the conclusion is so pay attention to yourself. Watch your own life. Now, Ravi Zacharias once said, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. For many years, I loved that quote. I still love that quote. But now as I read it and examine it, it comes, I think, with fresh source because as many of us, we would know, Ravi Zacharias came out really, in effect, post-death to be fraudulent in what he was saying. He was a man that was having multiple adulterous relationships, committing scandalous sexual immorality. On his travels, he would take masseuses with him and have sex with them and explain to them that you're doing a wonderful thing for God by pleasing me. Scandalous and horrific sin. Many little ones are no longer following Jesus because of Ravi Zacharias' life. The sad thing is his quote is brilliant. He just failed to do it. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It will cost you far more than you wanted to pay. I doubt Mr. Zacharias started his ministry that way. He probably started to dabble with a small amount of sin and the reality is it took him further than he wanted to go, cost him more than he wanted to pay. He failed to recognize his own words. You see, for all of us, my friends, sin never delivers as advertised. Sin is guilty of false advertising. It tells you it's going to be great, but it doesn't tell you that it comes with nausea and vomiting. 
Maybe even now you're thinking about the sin that you're committing in your life and you think, I don't think it's too bad because it would never cause somebody else to stumble. Really? Then it's already started to deceive you. It will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you ever dreamed that it would cost you to pay. So I want to ask you a question. How are you going with putting sin to death in your life? How are you going with confessing your sin to one another? In Sovereign Grace Church, we even have growth groups. And we call them growth groups because putting sin to death groups sounds a bit strange. But that's what they're for. We're coming together to grow. I need other brothers and sisters. Would you help me? Because these are some of the things I'm dealing with. and I'm, I'm not going to show you how to put it off and renew my mind and put on. Would you hold me accountable? Would you run with me in this? Because I want to become more like Christ. I don't want to be somebody who causes other people to stumble. It's a horrendous thing. Would you help me? I don't want to dabble with sin in my life. How are you going in that? How are you going at aggressively going after sin in your life? Is anybody else aware of the sin in your life? The first thing it means to truly walk together as extraordinary audio Christians, well, number one, it means watching ourselves. But that's not all. Number two, it means rebuking and forgiving others. And that's what Jesus talks about next. You see, closely linked to the responsibility to not cause others to stumble is the responsibility to help others when they fall. And we do that in two distinct ways. First of all, we need to have, first and foremost, a willingness to rebuke others. So to recognize when others are falling, when they are sinning, and rebuke them. Jesus says it very clearly in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, let's just pause there. That's not like an optional extra of Christianity. He said, no, no, this is what we're called to do. If you know your brother is sinning, then rebuke him. Now, what does that mean, rebuke? Because I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want us to become the spiritual police. I wouldn't want us to apply over coffee. I'm just letting you know you have sinned and walk away. Okay, that's not going to work out. That's obviously not what this means. What does it mean when it called to rebuke? Listen, here's what a rebuke is. Be very clear. A rebuke is a gentle but honest conversation with someone about their sin. That's what it means to rebuke. It is a gentle but honest conversation with someone about their sin. Jesus is giving no room here then for some type of angry and self-righteous outburst. When you are angry with somebody, that is not the time to address them. You are lacking love for that individual. Your words to them will be noisier than a clanging cymbal. You must love the person that you're about to address and you must go not with anger and self-righteousness but with gentleness and humility. And yet go you must. Because though our words need to be gentle, they do need to be honest and clear clear with somebody. And why is it so important that we're willing to be gentle and yet honest and help somebody see their sin? Why is it so important? Well, quite simply... It's important because if you don't, they are very unlikely to see it themselves. They just won't see it. Why is that? Well, you see, the Bible tells us 
that sin is subtle, it is deceitful, and it is blinding. One of the things we read in Hebrews 4 verse 13 is that we need to guard against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Well, because the writer recognizes sin is so deceitful, it, it deceives me into thinking that it's not even sin. It's just the way I am, or it's no big deal, and we often don't notice it. And yet what we do notice is the sin in other people, do we not? And that's part of the divine remedy. So what God has done is knowing that sin is subtle and deceitful and blinding, he gives us a remedy, and one of the greatest remedies is a faithful friend who comes to us in gentleness and humility and says, Brother, I want to love you enough to at least ask you a question. Why are you always angry with your wife? Because when you talk to her, it sounds like you're angry. Are you aware of that? Or I've noticed a few times in group, you say things, and brother, I love you, I'm for you. But then I found out afterwards that those things aren't true. Are you aware you do that? It is humbly and gently and often courageously, because our knees are often knocking as we do it. But being willing to go to a brother or a sister and say, hey, listen, I want to show you something. I want to ask you to consider something. And my friends, I want to exhort you, we all need this as Christians. Because without it, you ain't going to see yourself. Paul Tripp says it this way in his wonderful book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we all have pockets of spiritual blindness. And that reality of spiritual blindness has important implications for each of us in the Christian community. But the Bible clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own self-delusions. For all my ways will appear right to me in my eyes. Listen. Yet my personal self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. And so if I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me and be my friend. That's so good. Without faithful friends, we see ourselves as if through a carnival mirror. We don't really have a good view of ourselves. We need others. And when faithful friends are unfaithful and fail to come to us, you know what they're doing? They're giving us the kisses of the enemy in that moment. They're hugging us and they're kissing us and we're hanging out and we're all sweet, but behind the scenes we ain't sweet at all. That's not faithfulness. That's the kisses of the enemy. Faithfulness is, hey, listen, can I talk to you about something? When you said that, it actually offended me. Or I'm aware of what's going on behind the scenes, bro. And I want to love you enough to come to you and ask a question. That's faithfulness and that is kindness. You know, in Australia, as I think about our culture, one of the things I I love about Australians is mateship is such a high value. We're all just mates. That's awesome. And I think that's going to protect us in Australia from being overly harsh when we are going to speak to somebody. I doubt in Australian culture people are going to be overly harsh when they're beginning to help somebody see the potential of sin in their life. I'm not concerned about being overly harsh. I'm concerned that in Australia we can be overly silent. We just don't say anything. Because we just want to be a mate. Don't be a mate. Be a friend. Be a faithful friend.
Why? Because we need it. And Jesus hasn't left this as an option. He tells us here very clearly in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Not, if you fancy it, give it a go. This is part of your call. This is what extraordinary, ordinary Christianity is. It's what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means being willing to rebuke. And then it means being willing to forgive. The second half of it. Look at verse 3 again. He says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So maybe you went to your brother and helped them see a sin. Maybe you didn't go at all. Somebody else did and they become aware of it in their lives. Listen, however they become aware of it, happy days. But they're now coming to you and they're asking for your forgiveness. Jesus is clear every single time. Forgive them. Whatever it is, whatever's happened, forgive them. You know, commentators describe this forgiveness in various different ways in their different commentaries. Some say boundless, some say total, some say limitless or immeasurable or without end. But all are clear that our forgiveness needs to be ultimate and every single time. If somebody repents to you, you forgive them. Listen, church, sometimes that's going to be really easy. Because you weren't that affected by the sin anyway, and you're pretty cool about it, really. It's no big deal. Oh, I forgive you, bro. It's fine. Let's hug. Let's move on. We're fine. Sometimes forgiving somebody is going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard because sometimes in the sad realities of life, people will wound you. People will say things to you that sadly at times will take your breath away. People will do things to you that will deeply affect you. Though just maybe for some of you, you will carry the scars for for the rest of your life. Sometimes people will say things about you to other people that aren't true. But you don't exactly know who they've got around and told. And so you feel just incredibly vulnerable now around people. Sometimes it is very hard to forgive people because those wounds can be what people have said and what they've done or the rumors they've spread about you. And it can be difficult. And church, I know that because I've experienced all three at different times. Here's what we must do. Whatever's going on, we must forgive people. Why? Because Jesus calls us to. He tells us that this is what it means to be an extraordinary follower of him. And when we do forgive people, we actually become, in God's kindness, more and more like Jesus. For God himself loves to forgive repentant sinners. His forgiveness is likewise boundless and total and limitless and immeasurable and without end. And quite frankly, how often has he forgiven you? And so how can we then not also give people our heart again 
and forgive them for the glory of God. That's what we're called to do. That's what it means to be extraordinary, ordinary Christians. Is that easy? No. This is really, really hard. (laughs) And the disciples are the first to recognize this. You can tell by the way they respond in verse 5. They're aware this is going to be really difficult. So you're calling me to deal with my own sin and really guard myself and watch myself so that I don't sin in such a way that could cause anybody to stumble. I need to be faithfully going to rebuke other people, which sounds really hard because they might think bad of me. And then when they do do things to me that really might hurt me, I've still got to forgive them. I think this is going to be really difficult. True. And that's the third point. What is the third point of what it means to walk as extraordinary, ordinary Christians? Well, number three, it means praying for faith. Praying for faith. And that's exactly what the disciples do in verse five. Look, at, look with it for me. He says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They're aware there's no way we are going to be able to pull this off. I mean, look at the state of us. We're not going to do it. So here's what we need. Jesus, please increase our faith. I think this is genius. They don't ask in this moment for Jesus to give them more love and tolerance so that they could forgive people. They don't ask Jesus for more time or understanding. Is there a plan B? Do you mind if I bury my head for the next six months because I'm wetting myself in these things? Do you mind if I do something different? No, they understand. Here's what we need. Jesus, we need more of you. This is a prayer of desperation from the disciples. Lord, the only way we're going to pull this off is more of you. Please help us. Increase our faith. Increase our dependence on you. Increase our confidence of you. Increase our experience of you. Otherwise, we're never going to manage it. And they were right. They wisely and wonderfully knew what they needed and where to run. Jesus has already told them in John 15, verses 4 through 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. They've learned the lesson. They realize the only way we're going to be able to pull this off is if you help us. Please increase our faith. Like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's the most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. That's why boxers have it on their t-shirt. I can do all things through him. Oh, well, I don't think Jesus is calling you to beat him up. So I'm not quite sure that's what he means. What it means is if Jesus is calling you to do something, if you cry out to him for grace, he will help you do it. The disciples realized if you, Jesus, are calling us to watch our lives, if you're calling us to rebuke people and forgive people, we're never going to manage it by ourselves. Increase our faith. Please help us. And Jesus, in effect, tells them in verse 6, you've chosen well. Because think with me about how powerful that faith is. It says this in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You know, again, that is a misunderstood verse. It's often used as an advert for the word of faith movement. That if I just had more faith, I could do this. Well, I've never heard of somebody moving a mulberry tree. Have you? I've never heard of that. 
I've never heard of anybody in the history of the universe praying in a mulberry tree, moving and going into the sea. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not an advert for more faith specifically. It's an allegoric advert for the power of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is, listen, the Holy Spirit that I can give you is so powerful that if it be his will, he could move a mulberry bush. A mulberry bush has deep roots that run well into the ground. He could pluck out a mulberry bush and put it in the sea if he wanted. And if he can do that to a mulberry bush, imagine what he can do to the roots that are in your life. The roots of sin in your life that you think I will never be able to change. The roots of bitterness in your life where you think I could never forgive that person. The roots of difficulty in your life of the fear of man that makes you think, I can never go to that person and actually rebuke them. I would just be too nervous about it. He's saying if the Holy Spirit can move a mulberry bush and put it in the sea, how much more can he do in your life? Isn't it brilliant? It is a powerful request that they are asking and Jesus is effectively saying, well done. You chose well. You do need more of me. And I will be with you. See, my friends, when we are going through things in our lives, I think sometimes we forget just how powerful the Holy Spirit is that lives in our lives. How many times as Christians do we say, oh, I can't, I just can't. Let me remind you a moment who lives in your life. The Holy Spirit and the power that he brings. Jeff Anderstelt says it this way in Gospel Fluency. He says, what we are talking about here is the very real and dynamic power of God living in you to create, redeem, and save. The power that brought the world into existence and breathed life into dust and formed man. The power that struck down the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea so that all Israel could pass through on dry ground. The power we proclaim in the gospel is the same power that was visible on top of Mount Sinai, ablaze with fire that was exerted to conquer Israel's enemies and that helped David to conquer Goliath with one stone. For this is the power that enabled Jesus to overcome temptation, preach with authority, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead and rise from the dead himself. My friends, that is the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in your life. The power of God lives in you. Can you do this by yourself? Absolutely not. But you can do all things through him who strengthens you. For the one who lives in you has the power to rip out a mulberry bush and plant it in the sea if it be his will. He can help you with the sin in your life. He can help you with forgiveness in your life. He can help you with favor to rebuke people. Such is his power. Really following Jesus and truly walking together as extraordinary, ordinary Christians, it means... Regularly prying out, to, prying out to God for grace. Listen, the last time you were in a difficulty with somebody, what did you do? The first thing we should do is say, Lord, please increase my faith. I cannot do this by myself. Please help me. Because that's the main answer before we do anything else. And then number four, the last thing of what it all means. It means realizing that this is just what we do. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those humorous anticlimaxes in Scripture that is deliberate. You see, here's the reality. Given the high and holy calling that Jesus has put on our lives here as his disciples, 
Think about it. To not cause a little one to stumble, to rebuke those who sin, to extend unlimited forgiveness to people, and to exercise immense faith. One might wrongly presume that if I do all these things then, if I actually manage to do all these things for you, then does that mean my life's going to be like, easy? Because I'm thinking if I do all these things for you and I actually pull this off, then I guess I'm going to be like, at least healthy, right? And be comfortable and my life's going to be pretty smooth sailing, right? We start to think transactionally with God, don't we? Which is why people get profoundly disappointed. For I've lived for you, I've moved for you, I'm seeking to serve you, but then this happens? What type of God are you? Well, so what you're saying is you do all these things for God and then he owes you? He sort of pays you or something for your behavior? No. That's not the way it works. Christianity isn't a transaction. I do this for you and then I want to know what you're doing for me. No, we're talking about two different things here. We do things for Jesus because we should. That's what we signed up for. And taking him as Lord and Savior. Now what he gives us in return is our life. We trust him in. Whether it be favor or difficulty. We trust him. Because his ways are perfect. They're not a transaction. And that's what Jesus talks about in this parable. It's genius. To help us avoid the wrong thinking that maybe you owe me something. If I do these deeds. He says the following in the wonderful mini parable. It is verses 7 through 10. It says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? I.e. the servant who, like you pay for, is out there doing the business and he comes in, oh, come with me, come and recline at table. He tells us, no, will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, carry on and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Isn't it brilliant? You know, like with all parables in Scripture, we've got to be careful not to read into them more than is there. All parables in Scripture, whether they be really big ones or really small ones, have one thing that they're trying to teach us. The one thing here is not, you know what, I know, this is teaching us that we should be inconsiderate and ungrateful to other people. So even when they serve me, I will not thank them. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not what it's teaching us. We should be profoundly grateful when people serve us. We should honor them. We should seek to outdo one another with showing honor to people. That's not what this parable is for. What this parable is teaching us is that when it comes to doing what Jesus is calling us to here, When it comes to the process of guarding our own lives from sin, when it comes to rebuking others, when it comes to forgiving others, we should not do it thinking that there's going to be some type of transactional special merit that's going to come into my life now. No. We should just do it because that's what following his Lord and Savior is all about. He's our master and we're his servants. And so we do it because we love him. And it's what he's asked us to do. My friends, what we have here in front of us really is a wonderful lesson. And what it all means to truly walk together as extraordinary, ordinary Christians. It's extraordinary. Because we've all been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I was moved last week, just being able to watch each of you come out and get the bread and wine. And you just think, this, the Lord's done incredible things in our lives. 
He has died in our place. And the only way we're going to pull any of this off is because the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrected Christ, now lives in our lives, enabling us to do these things. All Christianity is extraordinary. But in the day-to-day of life, it is also profoundly ordinary. We get to watch ourselves. And we get to rebuke others. And we get to forgive others when they've sinned against us. And we do it. Because that's what it means to follow him as our Lord and Savior. So my friends, I want to ask you then, maybe you're here today. And even as I've been preaching, you've been aware of some specific sin in your life. Well, that hasn't come through my preaching. I'm not that good. That's the Holy Spirit prodding things in your life. Making you aware of things, areas. Well, my friends, if you're aware of specific sin in your life, I want to encourage you to repent of that sin. And even as we sin to close, even as we sing to close this service, cry out to God, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Lord, help me deal with this. Help me put off the old self and be renewed in my mind and put on the new self. Lord, I don't want to trifle with sin. It will take me further than I wanted to go, keep me longer than I wanted to stay, and take me, take me to places I never dreamed of. Lord, help me. Or maybe you're here today and you're aware that you've never rebuked anybody in your life. Maybe you're too afraid. My friends, I want to encourage you to embrace grace to you today and embrace faith to you and start being what a faithful Christian actually is and be willing to gently and humbly go to somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm nervous about this, but I want to be faithful to you. When you said this, or whatever the conversation goes like, because we need that. You are a gift of grace to that other person. Do not assume, listen, definitely don't do this. Don't assume that, oh, they surely see it and they don't care about it. Probably not. They probably don't see it. They need you to help them see it. You're a gift of grace. Or maybe you're here today and you're aware that you need to forgive somebody. And it's hard because they have wounded you deeply. My friends, you must forgive them. If you don't forgive them, you'll get bitter. And that bitterness will become anger and that anger will become clamor and you will be a mess. You need to model what God has done for you and forgive them and let it go and move on. This is what extraordinary, ordinary Christianity looks like. And you cannot do it by yourself. But we can say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, how kind you are to sit us down as your disciples today and address us in the weeds and realities of our real lives. Lord, this is where we all live. These are the things we deal with in our relationships. And Lord, I thank you You've addressed us this morning. You've gone after our hearts. You've helped us see things. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just put this to one side, but that we would do business with you today, that we would take these things to heart and heed them and hear them. Lord, we're not blessed in our hearing. We're blessed in our doing. We're blessed when we see our face in the mirror and go away and make changes. Lord, did you help us? 
Would you help us to be a followers of you that keep looking up in their lives, crying out to you for grace? And then would we live this extraordinary, ordinary Christianity? I would all glory go to you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.